Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the first season of the War on Cancer podcast. This is the podcast where we aim to learn more about life with cancer, both during and after treatment, as loved ones, and how it affects us all. My name is Sebastian, and together with Fabian, my best friend, survivor, and co-founder of War on Cancer, we will be inviting experts and professionals and covering topics that are relevant for everyone that has been or is affected today. Our ambition is to shed a new light on the many aspects of cancer, and we hope that you will enjoy learning together with us. So we are recording today's episode in the middle of the current corona pandemic, and I would argue also crisis in many aspects. How has this affected you on a personal level, Fabian? On a personal level, I mean, of course, this has been probably the most weird and special time of my life. And things are, in many ways, changing. Honestly, it's been quite a good period for me. It's provided me with an opportunity to really think about where I am in life, reflect on whether I'm happy with my life choices and uh, where I think that I'm going, and to my happiness, or fortunately, I've uh, I've discovered that I am. This also makes me relate a lot to the time when I was going through cancer treatments. That time as well provided me with that same opportunity to reflect on my my life situation. And but back then, I realized, contrary to now, that I wasn't happy. Uh, I realized that my life prior to cancer had not been good for me, and that I was on the wrong path. That's very nice. I mean, you're always staying positive in whatever situation you're put in. And me, on the other hand, I feel quite pessimistic about the outlook. I hope that it will turn out to be a positive change for the world, but I just don't see it as of right now. But moving along, I know that you, um, you go to do regular 
checkups, leave blood samples yeah. at the hospital every six months just to make sure that you're doing fine. If they were to call you today and say you need to come in tomorrow to do this regular checkup, how would you feel about that? Do you, do you have any thoughts about being immunocompromised? Do you have any fear of getting the disease? This is a question that uh, I ponder over quite a lot. I mean, where am I in terms of my immune system level? Considering I finished treatment some two and a half years ago, one part of me assumes that I'm perfectly fine, yet another part of me is, is wondering, you know, is my immune system still compromised? And I'd love to find out more about that. It's quite difficult. And we will find out more about that and other questions that we have by inviting today's guest. So let's get down to business. Let's do it. In today's episode, we're going to chat with an amazing human being who started her career as a pharmacist back in 2016 and was diagnosed with ovarian cancer just a couple of months after that. She's undergone treatment, is now in remission and works full-time as a specialized oncology pharmacist whilst being a mom. She has also, much like Fabian, shared her story in a blog and written books about her experiences that helps cancer patients all over the world. Needless to say, she, as well as we, gets asked a lot of questions around cancer, and today we're here to try and answer some of them. A warm welcome to Amy. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to have you on the show. So, I mean, obviously you have extensive experience with cancer, so let's talk about your experience in actually going through cancer. When were you diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and like, how did it happen, and how did you react? Yeah, so... To kind of tell this story and to do it justice, I have to go back to the beginning. So it was the summer of 2016, and at this point, I had just finished my doctorate in oncology pharmacy, so I had specialized in the area. I had been working as a pharmacist for some time, but decided that the doctorate route was the best way to go for me because I just really loved the drugs around it, and I just really loved the people. Like It was just so heartwarming and interesting to work in that area. So I had just finished that doctorate at the University of Toronto and I moved back to a smaller city where I'm originally from. And I was engaged at the time and my husband and I are really healthy people. We've both been athletes on Team Canada. And so, yeah, so we're like really in tune with our body and we we like nutrition. (laughs) My husband probably more than me. (laughs) I still like some junk food. But you know, we were just really young and really healthy. And so we were set to get married in September. And so September came and we had this beautiful wedding. And afterwards, um, we went on a honeymoon for two weeks to Italy and Greece. And we do what I think everyone should do when they travel Italy is that you eat your way through Italy. I think that's the best way to see it. And so we ate pizza and drank wine and had cheese. And when I came home from that honeymoon, I had gained a little bit of weight. That's not all that surprising. And uh, what was surprising though, is that even after getting back to like a regular routine, I didn't lose that weight. And in fact, I maybe gained a pound or two. And I also had really bad heartburn. So at this point of time, I had just turned 30 and, and I was having heartburn all the time. Like this didn't make a ton of sense and I hadn't previously had heartburn. So I went to my family doc pretty quickly 
And it was from that point on that I discovered I had a tumor on my ovary the size of a football. So it was 21 centimeters by 10 centimeters. And really the only thing that I had that was alarming was heartburn. Like I wasn't wildly distended. I wasn't bloated. Um, So heartburn and a bit of weight gain. And so in young women, um, you can have growths on your ovaries that get really large. And it's actually really shocking, but you can have these really big growths and they're benign, like they're non-cancerous. And so for me being 30 and being so young and healthy, it was really thought that this isn't going to be cancer. We're just going to remove this with surgery and I'll continue on. But then as more tests came through, it became apparent that this was indeed cancer. So I had surgery, um, basically spanning the, an incision spanning the length of my abdomen to remove this large tumor and my left ovary. And then after that, I started four cycles of intense chemotherapy. And then, of course, a long recovery after that. Yeah. And uh, how, how long was it between your chemotherapy sessions? Yeah. So I had my surgery at the end of November in 2016. I started chemo right before Christmas. And then I did four cycles and I had Uh, it, it was every three weeks. Okay. So, I mean, you graduated, you got a job that you really wanted. You got married yeah. to the husband that you still have. Yes. Uh, you got a child. <laughs> yeah. And then you got diagnosed with cancer. No, and you so thought it was eating food in Italy that made you gain weight. Yeah, well, exactly. But Jesus. no, actually, our baby is one years old. He just turned one. So I actually had our baby after I went through cancer and went through treatment. And so, oh, you did? Yeah, okay. that's kind of the remarkable thing. His name's Max, Maximilian. And we call him Miracle Max because we were able to still have a baby after chemo after surgery and with me only having one ovary. And how, just, I think this can be interesting for the listeners to just hear, what are the sort of the chances of being able to have a child after having gone through what you went through? Yeah, so for me, I mean, all different chemotherapies are so different. And my type of chemotherapy actually doesn't largely impact your fertility. So, which is kind of shocking when you think about it, because... Really, you're putting these toxic drugs into your body and they don't all impact fertility. So mine didn't. So the main limitation for me was going to be only having one ovary. And we didn't have any previous children. So we didn't know, like, I mean, baseline infertility, I think, covers around 30%. So we didn't really know what my fertility was like. And so we proceeded pretty cautiously, but all along my oncologists and my other clinicians were very hopeful that this was going to be successful in terms of being able to conceive a child. Okay. Well, we're super happy for you Mm -hmm. that it actually worked out. And I know that much like Fabian, you started sharing your story in a blog and reaching out in that way. Do you remember why you started sharing your story the first time? It's actually very clear in my head. So like I started officially working directly in cancer in 2012. So I've been working in cancer care specifically for four years. And I underwent my surgery to remove my tumor and did my first cycle of chemo. And then I went home for Christmas, as many of us do. And I come from a really large family. I have five brothers and sisters. And I have copious amounts of aunts and uncles and cousins. And someone in my family at Christmas said to me, okay, so chemotherapy. So that's like when you get radiation in your veins. 
And I thought, you know, that was just kind of like a, a light bulb moment for me because I just think cancer is this kind of black hole where people get cancer and they disappear, they go through something awful, we don't really know what they're going through, but we know it's bad. And then sometimes they come out the other side and sometimes they don't. And so this kind of cloud of mystery around cancer and chemo and treatment is really hurting us. It's making it more scary. And I often use the quote, fear makes the wolf bigger than it is, because that's what cancer's like. So I just thought if I can show people what it's like to go through treatment and that I can go through chemo, then you can do it too. And then at the same time, you know, and I'm sure Fabian can talk to this too, but you have to be conscientious when you decide to share your story online. I mean, people are going to react differently because some of the information is shocking and scary and people are gonna have different reactions and they're gonna treat you differently. And so for me, I just thought, if I don't do this, like it, I'm the person that has all this education and experience in cancer, and if I don't do this right now, then who else is going to? Like I have to be brave enough to step up and do this to help other people, right? Like I can use these skills more now than ever before to do that. So I started telling my story, actually not with a blog. I have a blog now and I, I've continued to do that, but I actually started telling my story through Facebook Live. So after that Christmas conversation, my best friend and I, during my next cycle of chemotherapy, so I'm sitting in the, the chemotherapy chair with the IV hooked up, and we go on Facebook Live and answer people's questions about cancer and chemotherapy. And people found this to be pretty interesting. And looking back, it was a pretty gutsy move to go live and kind of put yourself out there. But those videos went on to be viewed tens of thousands of times, and people just understood it to such a deeper level. Wow. Interesting to hear your story and sort of your reason for sharing, because I, I do totally relate to wanting to help and wanting to inform. However, I must say that my first reason for sharing publicly the announcement or making the announcement that I had uh, been diagnosed with leukemia was primarily to get help. I mean, I had a ton of questions and I, I I obviously wasn't an expert when I was diagnosed, so I had a lot of questions that I needed answers to. I guess not specifically about the cancer treatment, but more about life with cancer and, and what I could expect and I needed advice on and diet and exercise and these type of things. And But I found quickly that my, my healthcare professionals around me wasn't able to or willing to answer to talk to me about those questions. So I felt, well, I, I still need answers to these questions. How did I gain those answers? And my strategy was social media. So I, I wrote a post and that post got viral. And from the consequences of that virality, which led to then thousands of people sending me messages back, thanking me for sharing, uh, thanking me for posting about this openly, that led me to start sharing all of my experiences. So. I came into sharing from a different kind of, I guess, need than you did. Whilst you were much more noble in that sense, oh, I guess. Or... <laughs> no, but you know what? Like, even though you came at it from a different angle, like where you ended up was the same place, right? Like by you sharing and looking for help, you therefore ended up helping so many other people. 
And I mean, on that topic, we obviously built the whole War on Cancer app uh, on storytelling because we think it's a fantastic tool to actually regain and boost your and maintain your mental health. So would you say, do you have any opinion of whether or not you think everybody should do it? Or is it just for a few people that have that sort of extrovert personality? You know, I will often say that I think no matter what your decision on whether to share publicly, to share to a few people or to share not at all, I can respect and appreciate wherever you're at in in that decision because there are pros and cons to each. And when I was diagnosed, I wasn't a very public person. Like I wasn't sharing a ton on my own Facebook. You know, I was just sharing like funny memes or, you know, things like this. Right. But I wasn't like, guess what happened to me? You know, I wasn't doing stuff like that. So for me, it was a very distinct decision whether I was going to go forward with this or not. And so I can appreciate when people are taking the time and taking that seriously. And, and I also have patients who don't want anyone to know they have cancer. So I can appreciate where you're coming from with that because as you both know, you are treated differently when people find out you have cancer. And so some people like to keep the rest of their lives more normal and have people interact with them on a quote normal type of level as opposed to have them interact with them with sad eyes and pity. And, and I can respect both. Now, for me personally, sharing my story and sharing my knowledge has completely opened up my world entirely. Like I'm in a completely different space than I would have been. And now some of my best friends are people who have fought cancer or are currently fighting cancer. So I wouldn't trade that for anything personally. Yeah, I totally agree. And just on that, and I mean, on the topic of people not feeling like they want or can share because everybody starts treating them differently. I think it's really something that we should, I mean, from a loved one's perspective, we need more support, I think, for everyone around a person going through cancer treatment so that we can treat people going through treatment more normally. In essence, normalizing cancer, which I think could benefit everyone. And you know, that's what I really like about War on Cancer too, is because you notice the difference. Like when you are sharing and telling different things within War on Cancer, I mean, it is normalized within War on Cancer. But then if you go and share those same things, like in your day-to-day life, people react a lot differently. And so that is just so important for people to be able to openly kind of share that as something that is normal. Amy, going back to your graduation and your you working as a pharmacist, you're now, do you say specialized oncology pharmacist? Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us more what an oncology pharmacist actually does? What do you do? Of course, of course. So when we typically think about pharmacists, we're thinking about health professionals that are working kind of within our community. So in drugstores on the corner of your block, or, you know, there's probably like a nice front store. And those pharmacists we would call community pharmacists or, or retail pharmacists. And, and I mean, right now, especially during covid those, in my eyes, those pharmacists are 
directly on the front lines and are acting so nobly. And I just am kind of amazed by their abilities right now. But for oncology pharmacists, we specialize in just cancer care. That's it. So if you have any kind of other ailments, that I would not be the pharmacist you come to. But if you have cancer, then I just take care of your cancer treatment or the side effects from your treatment. So for me, I work within an institution, within a hospital, and I am reviewing chemotherapy, I'm reviewing symptoms and symptom management, and I'm kind of managing that. So on the chemotherapy side, I'm looking at are the doses of chemotherapy safe for you? Are they appropriate for your height and your weight? Um, like, can we safely give this to you? And on the side effect or symptom side, For my job, and this is different everywhere, even across Canada, but for my job, I actually will do this independent of the oncologist. So our pharmacists are responsible for managing the side effects of your chemotherapy. So if you have nausea, vomiting, heartburn, diarrhea, constipation, anxiety, insomnia, you come see me and I will do my best to switch your drugs, to offer non-drug options, to manage things to get those side effects to be a bit more less or a bit more manageable. That is very interesting. And I wonder, I, I'm not sure, I wonder if we have the same system in Sweden. Do you remember meeting a pharmacist, Fabian? No, I was actually going to ask you, Amy. So do patients get to choose or get somewhat of a choice when it comes to sort of which drugs to take and which to not take? Or how does it work? So for me, what will happen is, so if we're going to talk about just typical IV chemotherapy, what'll happen is that people will come in, sit in the chair, get hooked up by the nurse to their IV, and then I will come and speak to them about the drugs that they are going to get or that they are receiving, tell them what the typical side effects are like. Then I suggest kind of like a baseline of what I think they should take in terms of like anti-nauseans, heartburn medications, maybe something in case they get diarrhea. So I kind of suggest a baseline, like this is what most people require. Um, And then when they come back for their second treatment, that's when I really dig into it because everyone's so unique. So it's at that point that I say, okay, so you had lots of trouble with this and not so much trouble with that. And so now we can adjust and remove and add things to kind of go to your specific scenario. Now, always when I work with patients, I always say they're driving the bus. Like it is your choice. I will just bring forward my expertise and my advice of what I see, but the decision is ultimately yours. Right. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, we did not have anything like that. We do. I don't think we have anything like that in Sweden. Mm. No, but obviously somebody has to oversee sort of the drug dosage, etc. But it sounds like it's more human in Canada as you as a patient actually get to meet your oncology pharmacist. So maybe we can learn from you. Yeah, well, uh, you know, and I, I do say about pharmacists and, and maybe I don't fit into the typical mold in terms of personality of pharmacists, but, but pharmacists are really... Um, they're really reserved and they're really cautious people. So they wanna make sure you are safe no matter what. That's their number one. And they are terrible in the PR department. Like they are never going to boast themselves or be egotistical. And so that sometimes can hurt pharmacists because we actually don't know that they're there or we just don't know what they can offer. Yeah, and how has your role as an oncology pharmacist changed since you've been through cancer? I can imagine that you understand patients better. Yeah, so how I describe this is that I really went from going through all this education, like I have 10 years of formal training to kind of get to the point that I'm at now, and I've been able to be mentored at some of the greatest cancer centers in the country and by some of the greatest clinicians. And really, when I went through cancer and went through chemo, I kind of got the ultimate teacher, which was lived experience, which was going through it myself. So for me, I consider myself to have this 360 degree education on cancer because even if you're the most brilliant clinician, there's just nothing that replaces that lived experience. So lots of people suffer from fatigue due to treatment, and and I certainly had fatigue myself. And before I had cancer, I would say to people, you know, the best way to cope with fatigue, the best way to treat fatigue is exercise. It's, It's strange to think, but, you know, you need to get out there and walk and get some exercise in. And then when I was going through treatment, I was like, if you tell me to go walk around the block, I'm going to get violent with you because that's just never going to happen. Like I can barely walk across my house. And so, so for me now, just as an example, when I talk to people about that, I phrase that conversation a lot differently. 
Yeah, I can understand that. And and your experience has also resulted in a book or several books, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, well, um, so I started, oh gosh, when after I kind of recovered initially, I wrote the Survive Her book. And Survive Her is a nonprofit organization that I am the founder of and uh, president. And Survive Her really showcased the stories of other women who are young and diagnosed with cancer and what it was like for them to go through treatment and to go through cancer. Um, Because when we think about cancer, we think about someone who's probably older and more established. And for me, I was paying student loans. I had just bought a house. I had just gotten married. So my problems were a lot different. And um, I found that with other young women too. So the Survivor book is still available for purchase and all the proceeds go to the Survive Her Foundation. That's very nice. Inspirational. Yeah. How many how many books have you sold to date? We're not oh, going to bring this into the podcast, gosh. but it's interesting to hear. I haven't looked at this for a long time. I think we were, I mean, it's not tremendous, but I think it was around 500. Oh, that's good that's, still. I mean, it was a great fundraiser for Survive Her and... And it was also just a great awareness piece. And, and we continue to take on projects like that in Survivor, like something along that same thread, just because we think it's really important that the public knows a bit more that cancer isn't just something that happens to you when you're 60 or 70. Um, it's something that can happen when you're 20 or 32. So we're going to move on from sort of uh, your story and your work as an oncology pharmacist. Do you think you have covered most of it or is there anything else that we want to cover here sort of that you feel that you haven't gotten to say? Uh, No, I don't think so. I think that's good. Fantastic. So Amy, this is directed to you and also to Fabian because you're both... I would say public figures in a sense. And I know that both of you get a lot of questions, which we have touched upon before. But I mean, we have a lot of listeners that have just been diagnosed or are in the first few months after being diagnosed. What would you advise them to do to improve their situation, whatever that situation might be? I think in terms of the questions I get asked just through my social media is most frequently get asked kind of like this, please help me. I was just diagnosed. I don't know what to do. And those questions honestly just really sit with me the deepest because I really feel for people in that situation because I was there myself. And in response to this question, because I I get asked it often, and when I get asked it, for the longest time, I really just felt helpless. I would be like, well, I wrote a blog and you can read through my blog. And, but you know, people are wanting something more concrete than that. And so in response to that question, I created the cancer guide, which is available like through my Instagram on my website. And through this course, I basically took all my clinical knowledge and all my personal experience, and I distilled it down to a course that you can complete in one evening. So it's all the basic information I think you should know on a personal level, but it's also the medical information that I think you need to understand to be able to advocate for yourself and to be able to interact with the healthcare system. And I put that all just together in a course. So there's three sections and you can hammer it out when you're first diagnosed. That's good. We'll share a link to that uh, in the information about the podcast. Mm -hmm. Fabian? 
Yeah, that sounds amazing. We'd love to have it in the War on Cancer app as well. Yeah. I mean, from my point of view, I really can um, relate to what you're saying or understand what you're talking about when it comes to feeling helpless. It's pretty difficult to give straight advice that sort of covers everybody's unique traits and, and personalities. I can only relate to or go back to my own experiences. So my first advice would be to write, to document your, your experiences. Either you do it publicly like me and Amy did, or you do it privately for yourself. Keep a journal because by writing, you process in real time and it helps you to deal with a lot of the emotional and mental trauma that comes with cancer. And secondly, I'd say seek out a social support network. And what I mean by that is find people that can relate to what you're going through and understand what you're going through. So ideally, something like the War on Cancer app, or if you want to do it through physical meetings, then seek out a patient organization. And thirdly, take the opportunity to really reflect on your current life situation, where you are, are you headed in the right direction, are you happy in your career, your relationships, even though cancer sucks, it is a unique opportunity in that sense that you get time. Yeah. Yeah. So very good advice from two people that have actually experienced and survived cancer. And thank you both for sharing. So, Amy, you're situated in Canada and we're in Sweden, but obviously all of us experience the current situation uh, that comes with Corona. Do you want to share what's the Corona situation like in Canada at the moment? Yeah, I mean, certainly this has been a very novel time. I mean, I was able to learn from a lot of clinicians in Toronto who dealt with the SARS outbreak when that happened. But this seems to be to a much different level. And so in Canada right now, and, and it varies because the country is so vast and so different, but um, there are definitely pockets where there's a lot of outbreak and a lot of concern. Where I personally am here, we have prepared for a peak as well, but we're starting to see some light in that perhaps that peak isn't going to be as severe as we anticipated. We still are very concerned. In Canada, of course, we have a large Aboriginal population and with many Aboriginal people living in northern and remote communities with limited healthcare services. And we're starting to see more of the impact in those communities now as well. And so that is obviously going to be a massive concern for us too. Yeah, I understand. I'm not going to cover what it's like in Sweden because a lot of our listeners are in Sweden, so they are experiencing it firsthand. But it's it's obviously something that takes its toll on every part of society. And I would assume that it takes an extra toll on cancer patients. I'm not sure, but let's talk about that. And I want to raise some questions that I know that both of you have gotten and that we also can sort of see on the War on Cancer app. So one of the questions is, how can patients that needs to go to the hospital or their healthcare provider, how can they safely access that space during this time? Yeah, so now that we've been kind of in this pandemic space for some time, what I'm starting to get really concerned about now is that people are actually not accessing healthcare services. So for people with cancer, you might be very scared to go to the hospital or very scared to go anywhere because you know you're at risk of contracting this virus. And 
for me, that brings on a whole other concern. If we ignore signs and symptoms that our health is deteriorating, or if we don't present to a healthcare provider as soon as we normally would, then that's going to lead to bigger problems down the road, whatever that means. So that might mean, like we talked about therapy, like you should not be delaying or halting your therapy sessions now because of Corona. You need to find a way to work with your clinician to still access that. That might be telehealth or virtual. And if you really feel like you have a side effect from your treatment or a concern, in Canada, we have made it so that the emergency room is safe for you to still come to. And we're seeing that people aren't coming. And so it is safe. And of course, you need to take the proper precautions, like limit your contacts, wash your hands, wear a mask if that applies to you. Don't touch things. Don't touch your face. But it is still safe for you to access care. Yeah, and, and I'm sure that all healthcare systems, they are trying to be on top of this and obviously have procedures in place in how to safely handle, for example, immunocompromised patients coming in, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Amy, as someone who has finished treatment a couple of years ago, and I imagine a lot of our listeners are in that situation as well, should I be worried that I am in a risk group? And how do I know uh, whether I'm in the risk group or not? Yeah, I get asked this question so frequently. Like every time I talk to patients with cancer about COVID, I get asked this question. So you're basically asking, am I to some degree immunocompromised or am I at a higher risk? And so this is a a tough question to answer because there's so many factors at play and we don't typically investigate whether someone is still, in terms of blood markers, immunocompromised. Now, If you're outside of your treatment, we of course can look at baseline blood work that contains, you know, your white blood cells or your platelets, neutrophils, things like that, which will give you an indicator of your immune status. But there are far more factors at play here. And so we don't routinely do that blood work to look at kind of the whole picture of your immunity. So now in terms of treatment, so we're years out. So Fabian, you're years out and I'm years out as well. But your treatment would have been far more immunocompromising than mine. So therefore, it will take your immune system a lot longer to recover from that than it would take mine. So people will really press me on like a time, give me a time frame. And the only really study that we have is a study in breast cancer patients, when they looked at their big picture immunity, found that their immunity recovered around nine months after they finished treatment. So that kind of gives you like a major dot in a really big map of immunocompromise. So for me, I might recover around the same time or longer or shorter. For Fabian, you're probably way longer than that nine month mark. Right. And then the other thing to consider too is all the other factors that impact your immunity. So if you're being treated for something else, if you're, if you have another disease, if you are say, let's going through fertility treatments, if you have poor nutrition, cause you don't have an appetite or feel nauseated still. Um, if you're older in age, all these things impact your immuno status. So I guess a safe answer to our listeners is consult with your doctor or your pharmacist because it's very much on an individual level, right? It is, it is. But I would even go a step further and ask a bigger picture. Like I get asked quite often, am I immunocompromised? But my response to that is, are we going to change anything 
whether we determine, yes, you are immunocompromised or whether you're not immunocompromised. Like COVID doesn't have a treatment. There's no extra precaution. There's no pill we're giving you if we think you're immunocompromised. We're still just going to treat you based on your symptoms. And if you are immunocompromised, I mean, it's not like you're going to run out and start licking fence posts, right? Like you're still going to protect yourself, right? And so nothing in my mind really changes how you approach. You just kind of want to know for your own health status, which I totally appreciate, but we're not going to change how we interact with COVID. No, probably not. And listen, I know that you probably read a lot about Corona and try to keep up to date uh, because of your profession and out of pure interest. And, and so am I. And so so is Fabian. But since we're still in the early days of this pandemic, it seems like the facts around it pretty much changes on a daily basis. And we have the tweets by Trump and etc. I mean, it's all over the place, right? So can you share your view on this? How should we as non-professionals, as non-clinicians, digest all the information that is out there? Are there any safe sources that you can go to? Yeah, this has been really tough for me as well. You know, honestly, what I typically tell people is find resources that you can trust. And, and when it comes to health information, I don't typically take the tweets of politicians very seriously as a clinician. And that's Trump and that is other politicians as well. Like, cause they're just not health experts. And, and so I just don't really put a lot of weight in that, but let me give you an example because the world health organization would be someone I would put a tremendous amount of faith in. And this pandemic we've seen people kind of reacting out of fear and that has included the WHO as well. And so we might have heard about ibuprofen being in the media. And what happened with ibuprofen is that the French health minister tweeted out some concerns that ibuprofen could make coronavirus worse, make the symptoms worse. And so this was kind of picked up by the media and it led to a lot of people stopping using ibuprofen, but there really wasn't any actual evidence behind that. It was a tweet. And the World Health Organization put something out too, saying, you know what, look, we don't think you should use ibuprofen. And I was like really surprised. And a lot of, you know, much more important clinicians than myself around the world were very surprised too. And um, that led to some pushback from the healthcare community. And the WHO actually ended up retracting that statement about a week later. And so for me, I just thought, wow, this is like a really, really novel time where even the WHO, who are humans, who are subjected to fear, are making maybe decisions too quickly. And so back to your question, where do you go for information? Who do you trust? And I think honestly that you just have to take everything one day at a time. Don't jump to conclusions, stay calm and just see how things pan out. You know, like even as we reopen back up our economies, like I'm not going to be the first one rushing out to get my hair cut. You know what I'm saying? Because I just want to take this really slow and be really cautious. Yeah, facts can change, and yeah. that's the that's the world we live in today. Yeah, um, unfortunately, but 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really exciting, right? Like the, the idea that this pandemic is occurring and we have the best researchers and scientists in the world full throttle ahead to find a vaccine. Like that is not typically how science works. Like if you've ever done any sort of scientific publications, you know, it is painstaking and it is years of trying to get it published. But in this state of this pandemic, we are seeing these scientists and researchers supported so well and that has resulted in our information changing at this really rapid pace. From a mental health point of view, this corona pandemic has affected all of us uh, in one way or the other. Things are changing. Some people are worried about what's going to happen. What does life after corona look like? And personally, I feel that this sort of isolation or self-isolation process kind of resembles going through cancer. And I feel I've been able to use a lot of the techniques that I learned when I was going through cancer myself. Do you feel that your experience as a cancer patient has helped you through this from a mental health point of view? Yeah, there are so many parallels that you can draw between cancer and between COVID. Like it's kind of remarkable actually. And, and certainly I think my ability to kind of take this information as it comes and more so my ability to identify you know, when things are getting a bit too anxiety ridden, um, like that's a big step in terms of, of mental health. It's just even identifying when it's time to step back, when it's time to get a release, take a break. So certainly I feel like I do have the tools now more so than ever before to be able to cope with this. That is uh, encouraging, I would say. You know, I hear that a lot from people with cancer is that they'll say, I was diagnosed two years ago. I have been practicing for two years in isolating myself from people that are sick or avoiding people that are sick. So I am ready to hunker down and isolate myself now. And isn't that the truth? Like Fabian, you probably felt that. Very much so. I mean, I wouldn't call this peanuts, <laughs> but, but no, I can totally relate to it in, in a way that it feels similar and uh, just spending months and months on your own, it teaches you quite a lot of things. And again, I want to go back to what I said earlier about reflecting. For everybody who's going through cancer or going through this pandemic right now, take the opportunity to reflect on where you are and, and where you're going in life. And where you want to go, I guess, as well. Yeah. Yeah, like when we first hopped on the call in our pre-conversation, Fabian and I were really dove into some deep stuff before we even hit record here. But we were talking a lot about, you know, coronavirus really causes everything to be disrupted and if you are having things canceled now because of coronavirus and thinking oh I'm actually kind of glad that was canceled because now I don't have to deal with it yeah. maybe you should be thinking about that in the bigger picture of things too you know yeah totally in agreement with that So, Amy, we have come to um, sort of not the bitter end, but we have come to this part of this recording where we're going to play a little game. Okay. And this is what I informed you about earlier, and this is where I asked you to brace yourself. So we're going to play a game called What Would You Rather? So I'm going to let Fabian kick it off. Okay. And the rules are very simple. Fabian is going to pose a question to you. 
you have two options and you need to decide which option you're going to take and you need to quickly or at least try to quickly explain why. Yeah. And then we give this to a psychologist afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. exactly. (laughs) Okay. So here goes. Amy, would you rather have legs as fingers or fingers as legs? Oh, fingers as legs. Your fingers can do so much more, right? I'm just actually thinking about it. I have a one-year-old. I'm actually getting excited about this possibility. (laughs) You wouldn't be able to move very fast, though. No, no, but I like my reach. I'd be like an octopus, essentially. <laughs> you would, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I can sort of understand where you're coming from choosing that answer. Mm-hmm. I'm going to pose another question. So, here it goes. Amy, what would you rather have your lower body be that of a kangaroo's, or would you like to replace both of your ears with oranges for the rest of your life? Oh, I would have the kangaroo bottom because I don't know why I'd want oranges as ears. What's the upside? I don't know. I mean, you would have a different sort of style, I guess. I guess. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. I feel like I'm going to go with the kangaroo bottom. I mean, when you started saying something about replacing your ears, like I have a bit of hearing damage from my chemo. So I was like, okay, let's replace my ears. That sounds good. But what you offered in exchange for my ears was just so poor. I can't take it. Yeah. But but imagine you you might get better hearing from them, but that's outside of the question. Okay. All right. All right. For for myself, I would choose uh, the lower body of a kangaroo because then I would be able to jump to work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that would be an experience. (laughs) Okay, so Amy, thank you so much for being part of this podcast and for sharing not only your story, but your extensive experience in this field. Now we know what an oncology pharmacist is. Hopefully we have them in Sweden. If not, we're going to bring this to light. I think it's been awesome speaking to you, Amy. I think you're an inspiration. I mean, I love the fact that you're combining this willingness to help with your expertise in, in a rather unique way. And we're so happy to have spoken to you. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just really grateful to be here, actually, because, you know, this whole community with people with cancer or supporters of people with cancer is just so important, not only to me and near and dear to my heart and my husband's heart, but to the greater community as well. So the more we can get together, the more we can share and support each other, then the better off we're going to be here. Yes, absolutely. So uh, we're going to share all the information about Amy, where you can find her on social media, on the War on Cancer app, and obviously where you can buy her books and uh, enroll in her courses. So thank you very much, Amy. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Next week, we will invite Dog Hardfelt. Cool name a psychologist from the digital healthcare app, Kri. We'll talk about the psychological aspects of cancer, what happens when you're diagnosed, does cancer inflict a trauma, how does it affect people around the person diagnosed, and is there something that could be defined as post-traumatic growth? Dog will answer these questions and more in the next episode, and if you want to learn more about our guests, go to waroncancer.com, and as always, you can find both Fabian and myself on the War on Cancer app. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.